Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. One last thing before we begin, and this is my email newsletter, The Howl. The Howl is a monthly rundown of the latest horror news along with my hand-picked movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered, all in one quick read email delivered to your inbox only once a month. Easy to read, easy to sign up for, and easy to cancel. Join the Howl newsletter by visiting nicktaylor.com slash the howl. That's nicktaylor.com slash the howl. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Carter Smith is a writer, director, and photographer who has directed such movies as The Ruins, Midnight Kiss, and most recently, Swallowed. Swallowed is an independent body horror film about two friends who find themselves swallowed up in a drug smuggling operation where they have to ingest drug-filled sacks and thus trigger a chain of horrific events. This is actually my second interview with Carter, so if you're interested in his director origin story, including his work with Paramount and Blumhouse, definitely go check out episode 34. In this interview, we cover the making of Swallowed, the benefits of working with a lower budget and smaller crew, and how to puppeteer monstrous worms. All of this and so much more on this episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for Carter Smith. Yeah, so I mean, I've always kind of been fascinated with body horror, and I think that that there's something. I mean, the, the type of horror that I tend to gravitate towards is horror that is kind of based in reality, and and sort of is maybe a half a step away from something that could actually happen. Like I, I find I find that sort of horror much more terrifying than you know an alien or mm -hmm. a demon or you know like to me the you know I mean. It, it it is always more frightening if it's if it's if it could be possible or if it's you know almost possible. So you know I love the idea of doing something that 
took place in the same sort of universe as Bug Crush. Mm -hmm. I'm calling it like basically it's like backwoods Maine. Like it's it's not a cinematic universe. It's like, you know, (laughs) small town backwoods Maine. Right. Um, And, you know, and from the beginning, uh, from the very first uh, sort of birth of the script, I, I wanted to write something that that was something that I could just go out and make with a bunch of friends on my own if I had to, if, if we couldn't get financing, if we couldn't get, um, you know, sort of the, all the, you know, the pieces to do sort of a bigger project, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to do something that was, that was impossible. That was mm. possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, body horror, like it, it, you know, this particular story, like it didn't require any, you know, over the top, special effects or, you know, sort of the, the stuff that, that the story called for was, was pretty manageable. Like I had, I had gone down a YouTube rabbit hole actually of this Japanese craft program hmm. where they, it was like, you know, those little straws that have the bendable top straws. You know, like the, oh yeah, little, yeah. Yeah. So like there's this craft video where they make a worm out of that. Oh, that's cool. And so like I spent hours like making this worm and then like painting it in latex <laughs> and like just kind of playing around with, I was like, okay, even if I like don't get like a proper special effects, you know, person to work with, like I could probably make this worm work in a shot or two if I needed to. Um, so it was, it, you know, it was, it was all based on what, what was possible. Oh, that's really cool. Did you end up, fabricating the worms yourself or that you worked with it no special thanks <laughs> luckily i did not have to make those worms myself okay i was gonna say they looked I, amazing i was very impressed as as passionate as i was about that youtube rabbit hole it was not like they were they were not nearly as uh good as what uh dan martin was able to do for me um he is a much better uh special effects artist than nice. me and my youtube well artist. the idea of the idea of getting high off of these animals, was that based on Sonoran toad venom? Based on what? Sonor, I guess not, but Sonoran toad venom? It's these toads that create DMT. Well, I mean, not, not not specifically, Okay, but but like sort of in general, the idea that like, um, you know, whether it's toad venom or, you know, mescaline or some sort of plant right. or some like, you know, the idea that it, it comes from the natural world and... You know, it, it is it is something that is possible. Like that mm-hmm. that was very much, um, you know, the the starting point for it for sure. And I mean, it also like takes you know, it, it's they are the bugs from Bug Crush. Oh yeah, right. You know, and it's just and it's and it's sort of ten years later, and you know, Mark Patton has figured out how to monetize these bugs <laughs> in a yeah. way, um, which was that was kind of the that was the yeah, that was the starting point. It was like okay, like what what would happen ten ten years later if if someone like rich mark's character had had sort of you know made it into a business yeah i want to get back to mark Patton for sure because it was really nice to see yeah. him again and he was a rare treat in this movie but uh i i remember in another interview you were talking about how you had gotten to just a point of frustration where there was a number of projects you know you've done movies for very major companies like blumhouse as well as dreamworks and it sounds like you were in, you were just basically trying to get things made and things were stuck and you just were dying to get something made. And just through frustration, you ended up writing a movie that is lo- a lower budgeted movie than your last couple of movies. 
which yeah, I, for I, sure. from everything I've heard, that's always discouraged. And I think it's a shame. And it's discouraged with managers and agents like, no, 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 you got to keep upping your budget. If you did a half a million, you now you got to do a one million, do one million, do it. You never go backwards. And I feel like that kills so many potential projects. And it makes people's careers yeah. essentially come to a screeching halt. I know they're well-intentioned. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, make, you know, on, on the one hand, it makes sense. You know, I, I will say that I didn't, I wasn't getting any of that from my agent. Oh, well, that's good. Um, but you know, it, it, it did come from frustration at how difficult it is to get films, you know, put together and financed and cast in a way that it makes sense, you know, to sell them today. And it, 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 you know, films are expensive and, you know, it, it to check all the boxes, you sort of have to, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, opinions you have to service and there's a lot of boxes you have to check. And, and I had just spent so long developing stuff. And then, you know, when a, when a certain actor wouldn't become attached, it would, you know, sort of get stalled yeah. or, you know, it was, it would just be like this, this, it felt like a never ending process of just, uh, you know, of, of sort of, trying really hard to get stuff up off the ground and then just having it fall apart for one reason or another. Um, and then, you know, I think that, that listening, you know, realistically, like listening to podcasts and listening to, to people like, you know, um, Toby and John Adams and, you know, sort of all of these different people that are, were making films in a way that, that, you know, just felt like completely, fresh and, yeah. and fascinating to me. I was like, well, fuck, like I, you know, I've, I have made these movies. I have worked with these bigger studios and I know how to make movies and tell stories. Like there's no reason why I shouldn't be doing it, you know, at, at this much smaller level, um, mm -hmm. you know, as an experiment, like in a lot of ways, Swallowed is kind of like my second first film. Like, <laughs> I think that it, it, it kind of, it's the first film that I imagined would be my first film, right. which, you know, wasn't meant to be, but like, it, it is a hundred percent like the, the weird little guerrilla style micro budget movie that, that, you know, that I always thought would be the types of movies that I made. Hmm. Um, and so from the beginning it was, you know, I, I wrote the script 100% knowing what I had access to. Yeah. Like, okay. I've got, you know, this cabin in the woods that, you know, my dad built as an off the grid fishing camp. Like that's a cabin. I was like, okay, I've got, I've got that. I've got like a white Jeep. That's the car that I drive. So like, you know, Jenna Malone's character, Alice, she drives a white Jeep. Like, you know, it, it was very much like I put all of those Rodriguez style. Yeah. Like I put all of those things on cards and had them in front of me the whole time I was writing the script. And like every time I would start to veer off and like, we're at a police station or like, we're at a hot, like, no, I don't have a police station. I don't have a hospital. Like I, you know, okay, I need a border, you know, crossing. And that is, unavoidable but that's kind of the one location that you know was was one that i didn't already have access to when i wrote the script makes sense um, and it was kind of freeing that the process you know approaching the process like that was was you know it was amazing because there wasn't any um you know it was a, it was a story that was created for the resources you know and, and the size production that you know we ended up with yeah yeah i feel like there is some liberation when you have constraints instead of having infinite potentials it's like you're limited to having you know limitations uh i think yeah. it it forces you to almost be more creative it's paradoxical but you know it's 
totally. Yeah, well, then the it forces you to, you know, it, it forced me to, to focus on character rather than set pieces or, you know, like, because at the end of the day, like, you know, what's happening between these characters and the dynamics and the relationships and the, that stuff is the interesting stuff. Yeah. Not, you know, explosions or any, you know, big stunt gags. You know? Right, right. So how did it come together? How were you essentially off and running once you knew that you wanted to do something lower budget? How did you bring the crew I, together, bring the financing together? How did it all get made? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I wrote the script and, you know, it was the, it was the, the process of actually writing it, it happened pretty fast. Um, and then we started to take it out to financiers and to sort of see what we could get. And we weren't looking for a lot, um, but we just kept running up against like, Oh, I really like the script, but why don't you bring it back when it's a finished movie? Mm. And just like again and again, heard that from people. And, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, I had all of the actors in place mm -hmm. and, you know, for the, for the time, for our shoot time that we had. And, you know, there was one piece of financing that we thought was going to come in and it was, you know, it was down to the wire and, and it didn't come in. And, uh, you know, there was this moment when I had to decide like, okay, am I going to make this movie anyway and own it a hundred percent and finance it myself, which, you know, it, it was kind of intimidating, but also because the, the story had been written to be so small, like it wasn't impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, so I ended up going that route and, and not taking any outside investment Oh wow! and, you know, doing it a hundred percent myself. Wow. Yeah. Which. You know, I mean, with a crew of, you know, only a couple of people and, you know, I mean, luckily we, um, you know, we ended up getting into the U.S. in progress pro program in, in, in Poland, which is for um, sort of partially finished American films. And so wow. I was able to get uh, visual effects uh, from a from a Polish visual effects house, Fixa, who did an amazing job for, you know, for free. I got my deliverables, um, you know, also from a from them like so. I was able to kind of, uh, you know, put more money on the screen than yeah. than what we actually had to shoot it. Oh wow! I had no idea about that that Poland organization. That's pretty amazing. So yeah, you bring them great, an unfinished movie, the and they find ways to either you know hook up with supplemental things like visual effects, color correction. I would assume just basically post processes. Yep. All of that post stuff. I mean, they they've got uh, composers who are you know who work on score. They, like basically whatever. You know, I think that it was six films or maybe seven films that went there and all of us were looking for different things and mm -hmm. every single film gets something, you know, you, wow. you all sort of get something from from that from that program. And it's kind of an amazing um, opportunity. I mean, the film has to be, you know, doesn't have to be almost finished, but like you, you need a, a really strong rough cut. Yeah, they need uh, to know to it's submit. going to be a real movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who's what's that organization called again? U.S in progress like u.s united states in progress and it's in Roklaw, poland u.s in progress okay cool. and it happens you... sort of along at, at the same time as the as the uh the american film festival that happens there gotcha it's like the little sidearm it's great very cool um so i think thematically there was a lot of really interesting things happening with the story and obviously we talked about body horror about the ideas of muling uh and things like that 
where I was tr- looking for the metaphor, if there was one. And I feel like there's two different types of metaphors. There's like a blatant metaphor like this is symbolic of this. And then there's more of these kind of somatic metaphors that recreate feelings and, and like mm-hmm. emotions. And I don't know, it felt like it came from like a personal place. So, and I, some people don't want to say what their movies, you know, really mean and represent to leave it up for interpretation, which I totally respect. But what was, the, was there any sort of a metaphorical personal meaning behind this, the overall story and characters? I mean, I think that that that's the kind of stuff that I don't, I'm not thinking about when I'm writing, right? but it comes into play usually more so either on set or when I'm in the edit room. Mm, okay. That's the, you know, I don't, I don't think in those terms necessarily. I sort of, and I think that, that it, that stuff happens kind of naturally right. like without trying to put like it in subconscious. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's subconsciously, it makes it on the screen and it's sort of, it's only sometimes only afterwards that it's like, Oh, wait a second. Like I've totally, you know, I've said this without even thinking that I was saying that. Um, right. But you know, with this, I mean, you know, there was a, there was certainly an element of like, of the, you know, the sort of the queer horror of mm-hmm. it all and seeing characters that are sort of unapologetically queer mm-hmm. in, a, in a genre film uh, where they're not there to be the butt of the joke and they're not there to be the first one killed and they're not one, then they're not there, you know, to be, you know, a, a sort of secondary side character like there's something about having them at the center mm-hmm. of this story that i that i found really interesting and i i think that um in a lot of ways this is the movie that i really wished that i had found you know in the video store when i yeah. was a kid yeah um you know not only for like you know the 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 content but like just the you know the story and seeing characters that are like benjamin is 100 percent okay with himself and who he is mm-hmm. and you know it is is sort of you know, it's not about him struggling with his sexuality or, you know, there's just, it's, that's a part of who he is, but that's not what necessarily what the story is about. Right. And I think that that's something that only, like, we've only like in the last couple of years gotten to the point where like, you know, especially in genre films, like that that's even possible. Right. Where you have queer characters without the story being about their struggle with being queer or gay or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and I feel like you answered this question, but I was going to ask, like, what is the difference between queer horror and horror movies that have queer characters? And I feel like you just kind of laid it out, though, but if anything else comes to mind. Um, I mean, you know, I think a lot of times uh, horror that has queer characters is horror that is uh, made by straight people that are not queer, that might have an idea of what a queer character might uh, might be. I think that, you know, queer horror as a a term, as new as it is, Mm -hmm. is, is maybe more tied to like the point of view or the, you know, the sort of the origin point of the, of the writer or the director or the, you know, the person sort of telling the story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, uh, I hear you. It definitely makes a lot of I sense. I mean, because something like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is kind of, is queer horror and it was made by straight people. And it's, you know, I think that uh, queer audiences have, have long sort of, looked for whatever they can get out of the films that they love yeah and you know and you're able to extract subtext you know in a way that you know you, you sort of had to because there wasn't any other option i think mm. now there you know there's so much more uh so many more stories that that are told from a sort of authentically uh queer point of view yeah in horror you know specifically yeah and i saw the documentary on nightmare on elm street too 
And uh, yeah, it was it was speaking of which it was great to see Mark Patton again, as I had talked about before. Yeah. <laughs> did you write the character yeah. with him in mind? I did, yeah. I'd seen I'd seen Scream Queen also. Yes. And a hundred percent was like, this is rich. Like that's you know, he that's he was the starting point for that character for sure. Yeah, I has he I haven't seen him in anything in a really long time. Has he not been acting for a while? Because I mean, he, he just was no, storming out of the gate there in your movie. I was like, "Whoa!" Because he was he packed yeah, a no, real punch. He's, he's been. This is kind of his return to form. He, you know, he he does the horror circuits a lot and does a yep. lot of. I see him at like Monster Palooza and Texas Frightmare. Yeah. yeah, he does all he does all of that, and and recently in the last uh, couple of years, he's been he's been doing a lot more, um, which has been super exciting. You know, as a as a fan from you know being a kid, I'm 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 happy to watch him whenever I can. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Um, so going back to basically pulling a crew together yourself, having a stripped down crew compared to what you're likely used yeah. to at this point, what were some of the benefits? I mean, I'm sure there's a number of drawbacks, but what were some of the benefits of yeah. working with a smaller stripped down crew? Cause you were crew of like how many? Uh, like eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah. So what were some of the benefits of working that way? I mean, you know, there's like the, the, the super like easy, you know, the, you know, like less mouths to feed, yeah, right. less, you know, beds that you were required, less vehicles to transport. I mean, all that stuff is, is kind of basic, but it also, um, it really felt like because we were such a tight group and we were such a small group, it really felt like, you know, we were in this together in a way. And, you know, there were sort of, um, you know, like, I mean, indie films often, you know, like, you know, you, you never really go home at night and turn it off. But like this, we were we were, you know, in the middle of the woods and, you know, almost camping together. I mean, we, wow. we stayed in this um, bear hunting camp where we slept in bunk beds and, you know, had, you know, uh, porta potties for our, you know, there was no flushing toilets. Yep. And, you know, it was kind of intense. But the like the benefits is everyone is is was aware of what type of project it was from the beginning. And so they were a hundred percent on board to yeah. be there for the film. And, and that's kind of priceless. Like that's, if you can get a crew like that, then, um, you know, you're, you're golden. And also like, you know, Eric Naj, who is uh, my editor and uh, sound designer, like, you know, normally, you know, your editor wouldn't come and be on set, but, you know, he came and acted as a script supervisor. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, he had never supervised before, but like editor slash script supervisor is like possibly like the most ingenious combination ever because, you know, he can kind of say, oh, get this coverage or what about this shot or we might need this later. And, you know, he's, he's made the notes. And so he's super familiar with everything from the beginning. And um, he's probably editing it in his head as you're shooting. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't have, we didn't have dailies. We didn't have playback. We didn't have, you know, there was, we didn't have any of that. So having that extra brain, you know, watching and paying attention to what we, what we were getting and what we might need to get was, was kind of great. Yeah. No, it's, it's really smart. I'm hearing from more and more people that they're having their editors on set, but giving them an actual role in addition to being an editor in production, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, uh, I yeah. think, I think script supervisor is the, is the perfect, onset role. I mean, it's a, it's a very specific, like there's like a traditional way to do it, but if you're, you know, if you're able to let go of 
you know, what, how it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, how a script supervisor is supposed to act, then, you know, an editor is, is a great script supervisor. Yeah. 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 It's funny that you mentioned the, oh. uh, the Adams family, cause they are such a force to be reckoned with. Well, they, I mean, they've got a film that they just finished. That's going to premiering somewhere. And I think that they've already shot and, and done an- another one. Like I, you know, I met them at, um, we were at a festival together and like, that was, the highlight of that festival was getting to hang out with the two of them for those. They're so fucking cool. And their kids. Yeah. 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 But that ethic of filmmaking, I think is so interesting and impressive and their movies are unlike anything you've ever seen. They're very much their own aesthetic. And I feel like if you're doing it all yourself, you have complete control and you can turn around things that are very unique because you don't have 15 people fucking with it, you know, as you're making it. Yep. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another benefit of doing it like this. It's like, you know, there's, there was no one to turn in the script to get notes from. There was no one, you know, no executives that we had to show the cuts to. There was no, like, it was a hundred percent, you know, from beginning to end a project that like, you know, I mean, of course I looked for feedback from, you know, from people that I trusted, Yeah. but that, it, it wasn't because of, you know, a need to satisfy any, um, you know, any sort of, predetermined you know ideas of what the film was supposed to be yeah yeah which must have been a real breath of fresh air yeah so once the film was made what were your next steps in getting it out and getting it distributed and all of that um so we so we shot in the in the summer and then uh went kind of kind of went right into the editing room and and edited through the the fall with an eye to try to get it for like the fall winter festivals, Mm -hmm. you know, to make those deadlines, which we, you know, we ended up not, not doing any of those and, and taking a little longer to edit it. Um, You know, because it was a, a a project that like, you know, no one was getting paid a lot of money. So we, you know, it wasn't like we could, you know, take forever and, and, you know, um, just work endlessly. So we sort of, we, we got it to a point that, that it was the the cut that we were going to submit. And mm-hmm. then it just became about, you know, submitting to festivals and, and, you know, working on the score and, and, you know, the sort of the, the traditional, you know, it was all the same steps, but it was just the fact that it was like basically two of us doing it rather than, you know, a, a larger team. Yeah. And then once the, you know, once, once we started doing festivals, that kind of snowballed and it was like, you know, once, you know, a couple of, you know, of the big genre festivals screened, then it just became, you know, kind of like a snowball effect where we ended up playing at a, at a ton of great festivals, which, you know, knowing that like from the beginning, I kind of, I never really imagined that it would be a theatrical release. Mm. Like I always kind of knew it was, it would probably be a VOD sort of situation. And so like, I knew that the festival route was going to be a super important, you know, way for me to get the film out there, but also to experience it with an actual live audience. And then yeah. it might be like the only chance to get to see it with, with a live audience. Did that influence the editing at all? Seeing it with live audiences, were you kind of screen testing it to a certain degree or were you locked by the time you were at Overlook? We, we were locked. I mean, yeah. you know, if something had failed miserably, I think we would have maybe, you know, gone back in but like we kind of didn't ha- even have that option like yeah we had you know we, we shared the cut early on with with people and you know to get notes but like by the time that we were at overlook like that was locked and you know it was it was final color it was final uh vfx it was final score like we were we were ready to go yeah so. 
So I'd love to hear more about the bug design. Like what was the, yeah. what was the process like in working with the bugs? What were the frames of reference? I know obviously they were based on the design in, in bug crush, which was your first short. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Your first short. But what was the overall design process like? What were some of the references and how did you arrive at, at what you have? Cause I love that you did it practically. You know, I think that that was yeah. huge. Well, the, I mean that whole, that all came from, uh, me being at the Overlook Film Festival like a couple of years before and I had gone down there just to see movies like mm -hmm. just as a horror fan and like I didn't know anybody at the festival I didn't like I so I just like kind of spent the weekend alone watching movies and I, I kind of you know with the closing night party I was like okay I'm gonna go like I don't know anybody here but I'm gonna go and I went and I was like okay I'm gonna talk to someone I'm gonna talk to that guy right there he's alone like I'll you know he looks friendly and it ended up being Dan Martin. And, you know, we spent the night talking and hitting it off. And he's, of course, like this incredible special effects uh, designer who has, you know, worked on everything from, you know, Color Out of Space to Possessor oh, to wow. amazing things. And so when I had this script ready to go, you know, I, I, I emailed him. I was like, I've got a film, but it's, you know, it's really small. And, um, I sent it to him and he was like, I'm in, I'll, I'll, I'll totally do, you know, we can make this work. Like I won't be able to be on set to, you know, to, to work these things. We'll have to do, I'll make it, I'll send it to you. And then we'll do a zoom to teach you how to, you know, do animatronics. Um, oh, so you had to do so, the you know, puppet puppeteering on set. Oh yeah. 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 That oh, was wow. like, you know, there was, there was a, we did a, a quick little zoom, like a crash course. And like none of us had done it before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and each, each of the bugs, you know, has two controls per bug to, you know, to sort of the tension of, of back and forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a, a shot with three bugs in it or four bugs in it, that requires eight hands. And like, that's half our crew, yeah. you know? So it was like, you know, it was like there was one person holding the camera and basically everybody else was on the floor underneath <laughs> you know, or under whatever it was like puppeteering these things. Right. There was um, no, that's not in my job description on that. Set. Oh no, there was none of that. I mean, everyone wore multiple, multiple hats. And the spirit um, of that I think is so wonderful and you don't hear about it as much anymore. And like, by no means am I endorsing overworking your crew or being unfair, but then there's, Movies where it's like it all depends on everybody coming together, going into extra innings, going into overtime, you know, yeah. in some cases not sleeping, but it doesn't feel like abuse. It feels like we're all on a mission together. And I feel like it's really hard to reach that razor's edge, you know, of getting people excited about doing things where they overwork themselves and they go outside of the bounds of, you know, what their job description is or whatever the case may be. But I feel like it takes a certain type of leader to inspire that in people. So I mean, what was it like essentially creating that sort of a community? Because I feel like it's a very, very much a communal vibe, that spirit of filmmaking. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, when we were, when I was pulling the crew together, I made sure that everybody kind of understood what type of film it was. Like there wasn't going to be a trailer. There wasn't going to be a toilet that flushed. There was, you know, it was, it was all <laughs> very much like, okay, this, you know, we're, we're going to be sleeping multiple people to a room. Like, you know, anyone who's not willing to carry in cases of water, you know, down a path to get to the cabin, like, you know, if, if, if you are sort of not up for pitching in in that way, then this might not be the right film to work on. Yeah. Um, you know, but the, 
you know, the thing about, about working those hours and, and that kind of, you know, environment is also like we shot in 15 days. And so it's not like you're asking people to, you know, to do this for, for months on end. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a short, sharp little like burst of, of, you know, dedication that, that you're asking uh, from people. And, and part of, you know, part of shooting in Maine, part of what was great about that and working with largely like a Maine based crew, like our sound guy and our, our DP and, uh, you know, they were all Maine based. And so mm. you know, there's not a whole lot of feature films that come through Maine. There's commercials and there's, you know, some, some short form stuff, but the chance to actually do a feature film, you know, that doesn't come along every single day. So mm. I, I found that people were pretty you know, we're pretty excited. I mean, of course, like the reality of it, once you are on set and it is as difficult as it is, I mean, there are certainly times when everyone is grumbling. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's kind of unavoidable, I feel like. Yeah, I think every set, you know, that's going to happen to a certain degree. So it was it was all local main crew for the most part. Yeah, I mean, Eric, the editor, uh, you know, came in from New York uh, as okay. a supervisor, like I said, the cast, you know, wasn't local. They were all, I mean, the four leads, they yep. all, they all came in, but everybody else, all, all of the other actors, all of the, you know, the, I mean, it was, you know, it was basically like we had a DP, we had uh, one sort of AC gaffer grip electric and B cam operator. One guy that did all that. Um, I had actually a friend from LA come in who he uh, did wardrobe, but he also did, hair and makeup, uh, bug puppeteering. He was Mark Patton's stunt double. Um, he like, so everybody kind of did everything. Yeah. Um, you know, my boyfriend came from New York who had, you know, not worked on a film set before and became executive producer All right. and like, you know, stepped up and, and kind of, you know, everybody kind of figured out what needed to be done and, and, and made it happen, which was kind of exciting. Your second first film. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so there's scenes that are really, really visceral, uh, and like really squirm inducing. And I feel like it's so easy to try to do that and to make things that are really visceral, but to actually have that physiological reaction, I think takes a certain level of craftsmanship. So what was the approach to crafting some of those really gross, visceral, effectively effective body horror sequences? Yeah. I, I feel like you know, in, in this specific movie, it was, you know, we were, I, I feel like it works as well as it does, hopefully, because you realize what's going to happen before it happens. Mm -hmm. And then you're given like a big chunk of time when you, when it's, it's going to happen, it's going to happen and you're dreading it. And, you know, once, once she says like, we have to get them out right now, mm -hmm. like, you know, oh. it becomes like, oh, okay, they're, that's what's going to happen. And then, like, <laughs> your mind starts racing and you're thinking, well, how are they going to get them out? And, like, oh, that's how they're oh. going to get them out. Like, and, and so they're, you're sort of given this, this lead time to, to digest, you know, <laughs> digest, so to speak, like what's about to happen. And then, and then it starts happening and then it doesn't, you know, we don't cut away. And it, it sort of, it happens in real time. Uh, you know, in a way that you might not expect it to, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not, it's not so, uh, graphic, like you don't right. actually see as much as it probably feels like you might see, but it, you know, the, the time that it takes and the, and the sort of the sound design and the, the sort of, you know, how it unfolds is, is 
excruciating hopefully yeah no i i thought it was super super duper effective in that regard i mean because also everyone can imagine like what that might be like yeah. and it's just not pleasant no like, I, you know i think that you know everyone can kind of put themselves in the in the position of those characters and 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 imagine how horrific you know that that might be yeah yeah definitely it evokes a lot of uh physiological empathy um so what was your cinema diet like approaching this movie did you go watch a bunch of cronenbergs like what kind of got you tonally prepared for this movie if anything um it wasn't so much tonally stuff that i was looking for for tone it was more stuff that i was looking at for like you know the sort of the micro budget ethos of like filmmaking at a scale Mm -hmm. with you know like the Adams family or right. like, you know, so it's like Hellbender or it's, you know, uh, I, I watched a lot of the, the sort of the mumble gore films, mm-hmm. like, you know, sun don't shine and, um, you know, a horrible way to die. And a lot of the sort of those like super small indie horror films that had been done with, you know, tiny little crews of friends that had gotten together. Um, you know, so that stuff was the stuff that I was watching more mm. than more than anything tonally, because I, I was kind of having come off writing the writing the script. I was sort of, you know, I was I was confident that I had on the page what this, I needed the story to be. And right. I just kind of needed the, you know, the affirmation, I guess, that it, it could be done in this way that I was thinking about doing it because I hadn't you know, I hadn't made a film like this before. I hadn't worked at such a small scale, even uh, my first film, Bug Crush, like the crew on that was bigger than it was on Swallowed. Wow. Um, it cost more to make Bug Crush than it did to make Swallowed. Oh, holy shit. Like, yeah. Like there's a, you know, so, so I hadn't done it before and I knew it could be done. I just yeah. didn't fully know if I could do it. And so it was a challenge to myself as much as anything, I think. I feel like it's such a good exercise. You know, as you said, this was a sort of an experiment, but I feel like it's such a good exercise to do, especially having done significantly higher budgeted movies. To then come back and it's like, okay, rubber meets the road. How good am I? Can I execute something yeah. on a really, really low budget? Because, I mean, I feel like a real mis- misunderstanding of what directing is is they think it's like you, you come up with the shots and the ideas and the concepts and you just create. And it's, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that it's at least 90% not creating, but coordinating and making things happen, you know, and being and resourceful problem and problem solving. Yeah. 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 Were there any, and, and it's, sorry, no, I was going to say, and, and it's, and it's, you know, the, the type of problems that you're solving are, you know, inherently different on a, you know, a, a movie like Swallowed than a movie like The Ruins. I mean, cause a lot of times on bigger projects you're solving like, oh, well, you know, we can't put base camp there and then it's going to take 15, you know, a fleet of 15 passenger vans to get people from here to there. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like, it's just a different set of, of 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 problems yeah yeah were there any um i feel like it's so important to, to watch movies that have been done at like at a low a super duper low budget just to see what's possible you'd mentioned yeah. a few of them obviously hellbender other stuff that the adams family had done before sun don't shine were there any real yeah. like fundamental inspiring super low budget watches that really gave you a sense of what was possible um I mean, so was, yeah, Sun Don't Shine, uh, always, always shine also. Um, 
there's this movie called Toad Road, which I have always loved. And it's like mm-hmm. a weird little, you know, almost found footage type thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just put together a list actually, for, you know, for someone, are we not cats? I, I like was kind of great and like weirdly inspiring. Hmm. Um, the, you know, the deeper you dig was, I love that watched. one, man. And that was, was like, so disturbing. The Ruin, of course. Oh yeah. You know, is, is amazing. Um, she dies tomorrow. Piwacket. Yeah, I saw that um, one. That was excellent. I love Piwacket. Yeah, I mean, it's, so like those types of films, you know, yeah. which are, you know, it's a very specific kind of, you know, contained story world that most of them exist in. Yeah. Well, when you're approaching something with that budget, what are the most important elements? Because I just read um, the Duplass brothers wrote a book recently called Like Brothers, which is one of the best filmmaking books I've read. It's just, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I listened to it on tape. Oh, nice. It yeah, it's what, is it the two yeah. brothers doing it, like narrating? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, man, I should do that. I should listen to that just to reinforce it. But no, it's it's a wonderfully charming read. But I think the the one thing that they talked about with their budgets, which were super low, is we, we're going to focus on story and character. But in your case, in your experience, what were some of the things that you really had to get right? You know, because you have to be so economical when you're on a low budget. But what are the things to invest in, whether it's time, energy, money, whatever? Yeah. I mean, you know, actors are, you know, I mean, I think that story character is, is at the heart of all of it, because if you have characters in your film that you don't, the audience doesn't care about and they're not invested in, in what happens to them, then, you know, it doesn't matter what the rest of your film is like, Um, you know, and, and, and actors that bring those to, you know, those characters to life in a way that is like complicated and, and, you know, kind of sticky and, you know, like that kind of, you know, involves the the viewer in draws them into the the sort of internal world of the character like that the casting is you know is you can put two great actors in a empty room and get something amazing and you can have the most beautiful expensive location in the world and if the actors that you have in the scene aren't great then like it's all kind of wasted um one of the things that i did on this which you know I found really helpful and it's like a weird little detail, but mm-hmm. like I, I, I knew that we would be shooting about six pages a day. Okay. And so in writing the script, I made sure that all of the scenes were like, I knew that I, I, I wouldn't be able to afford like a location change in the middle of a shoot day. So I made sure that there weren't any scenes that were shorter than six pages. Oh, you know, smart. so like if we were, if we were, uh, you know, at the, at the club for you know one day of shooting then it was either a six page scene or it was a 12 page scene and we would be there for two days like you know breaking it up that way because i knew that we weren't going to be able to to you know split any of our days and and be at more than one location yeah and that was super helpful when it came time to like scheduling from because you know we didn't have an ad we didn't have you know anyone doing that really so i mean other than you know myself and and Ross, one of the producers, but like, you know, that built in to the script made it, made it super easy to, to schedule. That's very smart. Yeah. I I feel like a big point of resistance for a lot of would be your first time filmmakers is they feel like the story and the script comes first. In other words, not putting these guardrails around it, not having the technicalities up front to that. You basically write the script around 
I feel like if you're not mm-hmm. doing that and you're working on a budget, you know, you're doing it wrong. Roger Corman has a lot to say on the topic. Wonderful book about it. Yeah. But basically, like you basically have to reverse engineer based on, you know, logistical elements of what you can do, what you can't do and, and stuff like that. So I think that's and there's something smart. really like liberating about those guardrails of like knowing, OK, like this page is, you know, this scene right. has to be six pages at least or, you know, or. This, these are the locations that I have and I have to work within, you know, within these restrictions. And that in a lot of ways is a lot harder to do than mm-hmm. when you don't have anything. But it's also uh, when you get it right, it can be a lot more rewarding and, you know, it, it, it can work really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, it's so paradoxical because, I mean, you think if you had infinite options, but it's the paradox of choice, like the more choices you have, the more you like overanalyze our little monkey brains can't process all of those options. Yeah. And then, and there's no way that I probably would have made, you know, I mean, I say it's like a second first film, but like if it really had been my first film, I don't think that I would have understood the, you know, those parameters at that point, having only made a short film before, like it's only because I have done those other films that I sort of understood the way that, that, that a shoot goes that I was able to like sort of proactively plan for some of that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was an experiment and exercise that paid off. I mean, it was a really, really great and super unique horror movie. And it feels really personal too. You know, it feels like it's got your very personal touch, which I think is a real yeah. benefit for just financing it yourself, doing it all yourself. And uh, that's and it. That. If it. If you finance it yourself and it doesn't feel personal, then there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. So you, uh, when we were, when we were talking before we hit record, you were talking about how you just, you got to, you, you found yourself at a point where you just, you had to create something. And in your case, you cathartically, uh, basically stress cooked, as you said, cooked a bunch (laughs) of meals and you knew you were going to feed it to your crew eventually, but you had to take some sort of action towards this movie, which I think is interesting. What happened there? Yeah, it was, it was that, it was that, that sort of point when it was like, are we going to get the financing? Are we not going to get financing? Like it felt completely out of my control because I hadn't committed to, to financing it myself yet. And, and the one thing that I found, like I, I wanted to have control over something. And so I just kind of stress cooked and, <laughs> you know, made meals and meals and meals and just froze everything, knowing that it was going to, uh, ma- making stuff that could get put into the slow cooker later on set to, you know, to feed the crew. Cause it felt like, okay, I, I'm actively doing something to help, you know, bring this movie to life by, you know, making this like, you know, chicken stew or, you know, whatever yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was kind of great. Like I, you know, I, I found it, um, uh, you know, and it was kind of appreciated. Like when we were on set, okay. At the end of 15 days, we were all sick of slow cooker meals that I had made, but like, <laughs> you know, the fact that it wasn't just pizza and like trashy food all the time right. was, was, you know, kind of you know it was, it was good i think the personal touch a little bit yeah. yeah well i bet it felt really satisfying that you took some action towards the movie that actually was effective and useful later down the line because i feel like when you know when you're waiting for the money to come in there's just this antsiness you know that artists yep. urge to do or make or just fucking we, I, I need to go what but that sounds like instead of smoking a pack of cigarettes sounds like that was a yeah. really positive outlet yeah, it was it was a much better, much better uh, reaction to that like anxiety. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like for creatives of any kind, I find cooking to be really fun and satisfying. 
um, not yeah. all the time. It's very time consuming, I find, unless you're cooking something super simple. Yep. But uh, no, there is something, especially if you're creatively stuck in any regard, the idea of you get a bunch of ingredients, you artfully put it together, you cook it, you consume it, and then it's done all on the same night. You know, your idea comes into the third dimension and gets consumed. Through execution, yeah, which is like so, so not what happens normally in film. There's something so satisfying about like, you know, seeing something the whole way through. Even if you are just throwing it in the freezer. Right. <laughs> All on a condensed timeline. No, it feels just like a good counter hobby for filmmakers yeah. who are frustrated by how long things take. It's like you, that creative urge, you purge it and you get to consume what you created that very night, yeah. which uh, you know, which is was definitely satisfying. Well, Carter, huge congrats on the movie. Glad we were able to do this again. What, oh, what's next for you, yeah. by the way? Um, after... I just finished uh, this another uh, project with Blumhouse. Very nice. Called The Passenger, um, which is a sort of uh, coming of age hostage road trip thriller. Ooh, all right. Uh, with Kyle Gallner and Johnny Birchtold. Um, that will be coming out uh, later this fall. I think oh, nice. And that's shot. Yeah. Uh, we shot that in New Orleans, actually, like as part of their. Um, you know, they do these uh, these series of streaming movies that are sort of straddle the line between television and film. Like mm-hmm. each is a standalone film. Yep. But it, it sort of is done with a, uh, a television model where, you know, the crew and um, a lot of the production services are in place. And then they just rotate in, you know, a, a different feature length script oh, and director. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, I was wondering how they're able to put so many. Like Blumhouse is putting out so many movies right now. It's it's yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, well they they, they do like they'll do a deal for like you know eight pictures, and they'll they'll get the core crew in in New Orleans. You know the production managers and the and the production designers and all the you know the all the key department heads, and then they'll just you know they keep that crew, and then they they just you know, there's usually two crews, and then while one is sort of finishing up. The next one is prepping and you just, you know, it's like a, a, a fast moving train and they just rotate in and out and they're all shot in New Orleans and they're all, you know, they're all completely different standalone films, but um, they take advantage of a lot of the same, you know, the same, the same people behind the it's scenes. It's smart. It's a good economy of scale. Plus those people get working relationship with each other and, you know, yeah, shorthand, yep. I feel like. It can, it can lead a little bit to coming in as the director, you know, as coming in as the outsider and yeah. people have already made eight films together right like you know that can be a hurdle to get over but like once once you know once you're over that it's 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 kind of great because that they do have that shorthand of working with each other yeah that makes a lot of sense well congrats again on the movie where where should we look out for it um you can find it uh it'll be it's on vod streaming like wherever you rent or buy movies you know from the amazons and the itunes to the google plays and the all those places okay great all right. Well, Carter, pleasure as always. Uh, before we wrap up, any parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Oh, I mean, just make the movie. Like, you know, if if, if this isn't the, the, the case scenario for, you know, writing something that to, you know, to make yourself uh, that it's 100 percent worth it. Like, you know, don't don't wait around for someone else to give you permission to to make the films that you want to make. Very wise words. All right. Thanks again. All right. Here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Carter Smith. Number one, write what you can make on your own. 
This is a recurring theme in these interviews. As both Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith did with their first movies, Carter took an inventory of everything he had access to and then built his script around that. This included a white van and a hunting lodge, both of which prominently appeared in the movie. It's easy to write beyond your budget, but it's still important to maximize production value. Everyone typically has access to something unique that can boost production value. A house property, a friend with a boat, etc. Figure out yours and write your script around that. Number two, make your second first film. Common advice or direction in the film industry has a lot of directors always trying to substantially increase their budget with every subsequent movie. You absolutely should if you can, and it's what agents advise, but it can be creatively limiting and leave you in a desert for years where you're making nothing. If you have a movie under your belt, doing one at a lower budget is not a step backwards, so it shouldn't be for your ego or your agent's ego. Carter has done movies for Paramount and Blumhouse, but was itching for a project and really connected to Swallowed, so he went all in with his own money. It's ballsy for sure, but it's what directors do. Number three, write with the budget in mind. With his budget so low, Carter figured out early on that he and his crew could shoot at a clip of about six pages per day. So he structured his script entirely around the shooting schedule and made sure that each scene only lasted six or 12 pages so he could maximize locations and minimize company moves. As much as it may feel like you're stifling creativity, putting these guardrails in early in your creative process can save a substantial amount of budget and, as Carter said, can actually be creatively liberating since limitations force creativity. Anyway, guys, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Hey guys, one last thing before you head off, and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. That's nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. Howl.